Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. sermon reading this morning comes from the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 will serve as the basis for our sermon this morning. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Benjamin Franklin, he quipped that visitors and fish share something in common. You know what that is? It's after three days both stink. Benjamin Franklin shared that, and it serves very often as an illustration for the age-old adage that familiarity breeds contempt. What does that mean? It's, well, that relationships that we have, the more we get acquainted with and familiar with somebody, it doesn't often always lead to warm and fuzzies the latest tech gadget that you got that you were certain would change your life forever, we'll give it some time and it actually probably just leads to more frustration the more familiar you get with it. Think about the first day on the new job or at school. Well, fast forward a couple months, it's not as thrilling. Familiarity breeds contempt our experiences and actually a a growing body of research prove that that is true. Certainly not all of the time, but very often our experience is that familiarity breeds contempt. Does that happen 
with the crown jewel of Christianity? Does it happen that our familiarity with the crown jewel of Christianity, the resurrection of the dead, well, it breeds contempt. I mean, you are pretty familiar with that teaching from the Bible, right? The resurrection of the dead. Simply put, it's this, that because Christ Jesus died and rose physically from the dead, you and I and all who believe in Christ will one day rise too. Not just in some spiritual, ethereal way, but we will rise physically, actually united, flesh and bone with our God in eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. We confess that. We confess that every single Sunday that we're here. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Nicene Creed, which we will confess together this morning, says, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We believe that. Does your familiarity with that breed contempt? And maybe not contempt in the way where you think that you can't somehow disdain of this or scorn of this beautiful teaching. Maybe just that you think about it value it, and speak of it less. You know it, so thinking about it, thinking about the beautiful and wonderful implications of the reality of Christ's resurrection and mine and yours, just doesn't really consume our thoughts all that much. We value it less. Yeah, we know it's a pretty cool gift that God has given us, but when it comes to other things that we have, we just, you know, would rather value or our thoughts show we value things that we have, even, even like earthly things, more than it. Sure, we don't, we don't actually hold in contempt the wonderful teaching of the resurrection, but we speak of it less. I mean, we speak of it way less to our friends and family than we do about the latest episode of Ted Lasso. Let me put it another way. This truth that we just read in Romans chapter 11, that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is in living in you, and this isn't like if to induce doubts. This is like, check your pulse. If it's beating, you are alive. That's what Paul's saying. If you check your pulse spiritually and the spirit's living in you, and he is, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Does your familiarity breed contempt? Put another way, does your knowledge of that make your heart beat Get the blood flowing. Eh, or eh, eh, not so much. In 1905, Frederick Wells uh, was conducting a regular, routine, familiar inspection of the mine shaft that he was in charge of. He did this day in and day out, and he was inspecting it. It wasn't uncommon for him to see things that would catch his eye. On this particular day, he saw something quite large, quite shiny that caught his eye and, well, he thought about just passing it by. 
He'd seen these before, but because he was in the premier diamond mine in South Africa, he stopped and he went to go look at it. He picked at it with his pocket knife and he's familiar with rather large minerals that would somehow you know, end up and shine and maybe think for a moment that it's a diamond, but he decided to take it to the clerks anyways. He brought it in and it was so large that it was somewhat unbelievable. The clerks kind of laughed at him and, and threw it out. They're familiar with seeing things like this, things like this that certainly weren't diamonds. But after some begging and pleading, Frederick Wells got them to check it out. And it's a good thing they did because what it ended up being was the largest diamond ever discovered of unseen size and clarity, over 3,100 carats. You imagine for a moment if... Because of familiarity, Frederick Wells and the diamond clerks there in South Africa just, eh, didn't talk about it so much. Didn't think about it. I just didn't really value it. Something, well, priceless, they thought for a moment was, well, worthless. Turns out that that diamond was later cut into nine different diamonds, including this one. It's called the Star of Africa, and it is a 530-carat diamond. And you know where it sits today? It sits in the Tower of London as part of the royal, royal gems, royal jewels of the British monarch. It is a power of the British monarch, the British Empire, and the Windsor family heritage. And when you see King Charles' coronation in what, just a few weeks or months rather, he will hold that in his right hand. You know how much the king paid for that diamond at the time? Nothing. It was given to him as a gift. Something that was once thought to be worthless, but was in fact and is priceless, was given away at no cost. Friends, what do you think about this truth? the resurrection of the dead. I believe that our bodies will rise again with the Christ. Some, some people often think it's worthless. Maybe from time to time, we don't think about it, value it, or really speak about it to the extent that it is worth. But here's the wonderful truth that God's greatest gift, the royal jewel of Christianity, if you will, something priceless, it is given to you and me as a gift. This is the royal jewel of Christianity, the resurrection from the dead. And it is God's gift to you that Christ Jesus descended into the darkness of death and sin. And because he died for you and me and rose for you and me, get this, God will give back to you all of your dead. He will give back to you all of your loved ones who have died, everything about life and God's beautiful creation that, that ends in death because it all does. God will give it all back to you. And not just others, but you yourself will rise physically actually with him. And your own eyes that you are now looking at me with will one day see Christ in the flesh, in the new heaven and the new creation. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. To many, this is 
it's worthless. But to us, to us who believe in Christ, something, well, that seems worthless to many, but is in fact priceless, it's given to you as a gift. In Romans chapter eight, and, and really this Sunday in our Lenten journey, what we have the opportunity to do is, is just hold up this royal jewel of Christianity. Take it out of its safekeeping in the Tower of London, if you will. Take it out of its setting in the scepter and just hold it for ourselves and see the dizzying brilliance of this gift that God has given us. And then what God's word does is actually beckon us to come a little closer zoom in on it and look at it. Look at all the different facets or sides of this, if you will. There's certainly hundreds of different facets to this beautiful, beautiful gift that God has given us listed in scripture. But what our lesson from Romans does this morning is invite us to look at three facets or three sides or three implications of living the resurrection life. What is resurrection living? Well, it's not taking for granted. It's, it's not becoming so familiar with this royal jewel that we simply value it less. But instead, by the Holy Spirit's power, this, this is my prayer, that this morning he'd take that truth and implant it ever deeper into our hearts so we never get sick of looking at this beautiful, wonderful gift that God has given us. We're looking at three facets of resurrection living and what it is. And here's the first. Paul said, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, and he is, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, all right, Paul is saying there's some conclusions here. There's some fruit of knowing this, by the way. Let's look at these facets. Here's the first one. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. It's a word that sticks out as odd or not good for very many. Obligation that you have an obligation. You hear that and you think, that is no fun. Because obligation, well, it brings to mind things that I have to do that I don't want to do. And maybe in your job, you can think of things that you have to do that you don't want to do. That's an obligation. Maybe in your life, you have some relationships where you have to do things or go to things that you don't want to, but you do it anyways. That's typically how we think of obligations. But is that what... God in his word is talking about here? Well, certainly not. You have a gift. You have a gift that is the spirit, the Holy Spirit of the most high God who actually raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And that same spirit is living in you. And God has given his promise that that spirit will also raise you from the dead. It means you have an obligation. It's because of a gift. You could think of it like this. Very recently, a family member gave my wife and me a gift card to a restaurant. And that gift is very generous and it's very awesome. And you might say, because I have this, well, I have an obligation. An obligation to use that gift card. 
Of course, I could sit at home and not eat the good food and just eat Twinkies and drink Kool-Aid, but, well, that would be easier. No, it's actually wonderful that we have this gift and this opportunity, an obligation to use the gift. And that is the joy that we have in Christ by the Spirit to live not according to the flesh, to want to just do what's easier and eat Twinkies and spiritual Kool-Aid, but to live according to the Spirit, to live the life that He has given us. Well, you get how to use a gift card, but what does it mean to, to live by the Spirit and put to death the misdeeds of the body? We can think of it in this way. Picture a balloon blowed up and filled up. The Spirit is in the balloon, in you. The Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is in you. You're floating, you're living, and that is a good thing. And yet very often, we forget that this comes with a warning that if we live according to the flesh, if we just float around and do whatever we want and go wherever we please, we can just do whatever we want. But scripture is clear. There is a warning. There is sin. There is death. And when you do what you want, even though you think, ah, I just, I live by the spirit, that will pop the balloon. It will result in death and you will die, not just physically, but spiritually. And so, if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. Well, what does it mean if in this analogy, we'll picture it this way. What happens to a balloon if it gets dirty or picks up lint and fuzz? How do you clean that off? Well, there's probably not many people that are in the business of cleaning balloons, but if you wanted to be about this, what could you do? You could push it underwater. And what would naturally happen if you put a balloon filled with air underwater? it will pop up and float again. It's the picture that God's word gives us in our baptism, that you have been buried with Christ in the waters of your baptism, that you have been washed clean again by the spirit. And now get this, the same exact spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that raised you up in the waters of your baptism, presently now is, in, is living in you. Here's the first facet or implication of resurrection living. What is it? It is a spirit-fueled life amid fleshly death. It is a blunt and stark reality that the death is all around us. Everything will die. Everything will die. Everyone will die because of the effect that sin has on our world, on our life. And yet amid all of that, you and I avoid that. How? By the Spirit. By the Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead and who is now living in you, who will give life to your mortal bodies because he lives in you. Here's the second facet. Paul writes, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. One of the hallmarks of resurrection living is living in the Father and not in fear. What does that mean? 
Well, Paul is writing to people who are very familiar with the idea of slavery. And so he talks about slavery and he's talking about a slavery to fear. What does that mean? These people that Paul is writing to also were very familiar with a religion that is, un, that is like every religion outside of Christianity. They worship pagan gods and, and Romans worship pagan gods and what consumed all of their time and thinking is this, how can I live a moral life? How can I give right sacrifices to these gods so that I'm good with them? And inevitably, they would fall short fall short of doing right sacrifices and living right lives. And so they would live in fear that what would happen to them? What would those gods do to them? This is a fear cycle that they experienced. And even though you don't worship pagan gods, you know all too well. Even those who worship the God, those who worship Christ deal with fear. It's only the gospel that says this gift has been given to you. You have the resurrection of the life. Enjoy it. But our natural bent, the world and every other ideology pulls us to think, man, yeah, I know that I hear God loves me, but he can't really like me after what I did. And so we try to live good lives, moral lives, do right thing, be kind to everybody. And we wonder, does that make me good with him? Have I done enough? And you dwell on that question. Have I done enough? And it brings about one thing and one thing alone. And it is this fear cycle of always worrying, always wondering if you've done enough to be right with God. And what Paul says, what God's word says to you is that you don't live in that slavery to fear any longer, but you live in the father. And there he unpacks a another picture that everyone would have been very familiar with, the picture of adoption to sonship. That if somebody did not have a son, they would go and adopt a son who would become theirs and inherit everything that was theirs. And when they adopted somebody, two things would happen to that person. Number one, no matter what their financial standing was, no matter what debts they owed in the past, they'd be canceled. They'd be canceled when they were adopted to a new family. That's what's happened to us. Your father knows you sin. Your father knows you have a debt to pay with him. And yet he's adopted you anyways and canceled that debt. Another thing that would happen to that adopted person is that they would have a complete change in status and relationship with the one who adopted them. No longer would it be that they were just uh, not a biological person or maybe a servant or even a past slave, but they would now be a son or a daughter and enjoy all of the rights and benefits of that status, of that relationship that any biological child would also enjoy. For a slave, someone who was adopted to that, it would completely change their life. No longer would they know that person only as a master or no longer would they know them as their boss, but this would be their Abba. This would be their father. This is the most intimate term of endearment that someone could use for their father, that Jesus himself used for our heavenly father in the garden of Gethsemane when he prayed to him. And this is what your savior says you have, a complete change in status in relationship. And it affects us how? Well, this is resurrection living. It is that we no longer live amid these slavish fears of wondering if, if we're good or not, or if, 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 if God is mad at us or not, or if he's punishing us. 
but we live a confidence-full life in the fact that all of our debts have been canceled and our status and our relationship given to us. Here's a fun picture that illustrates it. It's President John F. Kennedy and his son, John Jr., playing in the Oval Office underneath his desk. It's not the only picture of this happening. His son got to play in his office often. It's a cute picture, right? To see him peeking out from underneath this desk. Now, think not only about why John Jr. got to enjoy that, but think about this for a second. What would happen if you were caught playing underneath the president's desk today? It wouldn't be good. You might be afraid of the consequences that would happen to you if you were caught just hanging out in President Joe Biden's office and playing under his desk. No, rightly so, you should be afraid because it would not only be weird if you were doing this, it would actually be wrong. It would be against the law. And it's right, you, you should be afraid. And yet, think about it, if the president was your father, because of a certain status, a certain relationship that only they enjoy, it's no problem. That is your relationship with your father in heaven. He is your Abba and mine and Christ's father as well. And the reality is we live amid fear that will not go away. We will constantly fall back into our natural selves to wonder, am I really good with God? The feeling of being good with God doesn't come from inside of us but it comes from an adoption that took place and an adoption that the Spirit himself gives his witness to and his testimony about that you, in fact, are God's children. Here's the third facet. Because you are God's children now, if we are children, then we are also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Here's the third facet of what it means to live a resurrected life here and now. Is that resurrection living is a glory-filled life amid daily constant suffering. Here's one thing that resurrection living does not mean. It doesn't mean that we're resurrected now. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden heaven is here on earth. Scripture does not make that point at all. In fact, it's very real about the opposite, that we live in eager anticipation for something that's not this, for something that's far different than this. You believe in the resurrection and the life. We live resurrected living. But it doesn't mean that we are without present sufferings. Resurrected living doesn't dismiss or diminish that. We suffer physically in all sorts of ways. We suffer great sadness and grief 
when we lose to death those we love and care about. We suffer even grief and sadness when when we lose things, maybe opportunities that we wanted and it dies because it, it clearly was what our will was, but not God's. We have sufferings. Resurrected living does not mean that sufferings disappear. But what it does mean is that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that you have right now. The glory that will be revealed in us on that day when Christ Jesus comes again and unites our souls with our bodies. It's like comparing apples to oranges. It's saying that the greater the suffering you have, the greater the glory that God has for you. Because as great as suffering is, there's nothing that can compare to that which Christ has for you. That's what resurrected living is. Resurrected living is saying that we have all that. Why? Because we're co-heirs. We're co-heirs with Christ. Christ died, you will die. But Christ rose, therefore you will rise. Christ has glory as the heir and the firstborn of all creation. Therefore you can know that you have that. Resurrected living is glory-filled life, even amid daily suffering. I don't know if you caught that, if you're following along our worship guide or filling in the notes, that resurrection living takes place amid some bad things. We started out this sermon by asking the question, do we take for granted? Does our familiarity with the resurrection of the body breed contempt? And maybe not that we sustain of it, but that we just, we just don't think very much of it or value it very highly. So often amid things like death, and it's all around us in suffering and actual physical death, it's very easy to become so focused on that. Or the fact that we live amid fear, it's very easy to let that idea consume our thoughts fact that we have suffering. It's very easy to focus in on that instead of see the whole picture of what you have. And so we zoom in on these facets of this diamond, but we need to zoom out. One commentator on Romans chapter eight compared what we have here to a builder building a house. What would you call a builder if he focused only on his hammer and nail? If he focused only on one angle, one joist that he was putting together, or maybe just one beam of wood? What would you call that type of builder? Well, you'd call him a fool. You'd call him a fool. Anybody who doesn't step back and look at the big picture and and see the full plans and see how all of these pieces fit together and work. And it's easy to do that. Amid death, amid suffering, amid fear and sin that we have, it's easy to just focus in on that. And so what the Holy Spirit does is he brings us out. He brings us out to see the royal gem that we have in the resurrection and the life. To see this amazing fact that the very same Jesus who was risen from the dead by the power of God, that spirit is living in you as well and will give life to your bodies. Amen.